posed by the act of shouting hello into a small mouthpiece became in the next year experts on the changing social patterns of their own lives loneliness both urban and rural was to be banished in emergencies help was only a phone call away time and space were annihilated people said and einstein was just a teenager of course, another technological surprise was rolling around the corner. The social historian Claude Fisher found this shocked headline in an Antioch, California newspaper from 1906. Many deaths due to devil wagon. Dead and unconscious forms left in wake of speeding automobiles operated by reckless chauffeurs. So, if we sometimes found ourselves in the 1990s alternating between shock and wonder, we weren't the first. We didn't quite see cyberspace until we got there. Then again, our ancestors had glimpsed it a hundred years earlier. The news of the world is gathered from its four corners in less than a second's time, declared the president of the National Electric Light Association in 1896, and he was describing his present, not our future. The softest whisper of the human voice is transmitted a thousand leagues. Night is turned into day, darkness into light. The waste forces of nature are harnessed and wafted like spirits, unseen and instantaneously over mountains and rivers, miles upon miles. In reality, these transformations were far slower than they seemed. The diffusion of innovation took decades, where now we think in terms of years. For both electricity and the telephone, roughly a half-century passed in the United States, between commercial introduction and something resembling true ubiquity. Consumers of technology learn to be nimbler now, to skip lightly across the years, to pass with barely a tremor from vinyl to CD, from punch card to microdrive. So, I ask the reader, savvy as you are, to enter a time tunnel, transport yourself back to the crepuscular past of the 1990s. We citizens of the 21st century have learned a few things, discarding our previous quaint mindsets as snakes shed their skins. But we don't get away altogether clean. When the decade began, I had been a science reporter, mostly. I was working to finish a biography of Richard Feynman, succumbing to a classic form of writer's avoidance. I became more interested than was altogether healthy in one of my professional tools, my word processor. An adventure ensued. It is recounted in the opening essay, Chasing Bugs in the Electronic Village. Apparently, the Electronic Village is where I located myself in 1992, in a permanent floating conversation, a new culture in formation. Several of the themes that thread through this volume begin here. The problem of the software defect, the problem of the word bug, for that matter, the problem of Microsoft, and the problem of user angst. Now and again, I expect the reader to be brought up short, as I am, rereading my words. How outlandish the past was. Was the dominant word processor really a thing called word perfect?
made by a large, successful company called Word Perfect? How strange to recall a relatively small number of personal computer users use Windows. Someone spending time with scientists at the universities and government laboratories could hardly fail to notice their fondness for a new medium of communication. They exchanged letters electronically without paper. They sent one another mail, and the U.S. Postal Service was nowhere involved. This was no trivial business. It was shaking the fundamental structure of scientific communication. The grand refereed journals were not going to go out of business overnight, but more and more the real work of science, at least the real news of science, transpired via electronic preprints. Occasionally, a scientist would ask me, collegially, for my email address. I was embarrassed. Where on the Internet was I? I had wires coming into my house, transporting data, bidirectionally, kilobits at a time. It was analog data. And those wires had been there since approximately the time of Alexander Graham Bell. But I had a modem, a fast 1,200-baud modem. I understood the meaning of bandwidth. I felt I should be able to connect to the Internet somehow, if I could just find it, this thing, this place, this entity. A year later, I was researching an article called The Telephone Transformed into Almost Everything. We see now that this belonged to the time-honored journalistic genre. Something is happening here, but you don't know what it is. I was trying to grasp a phenomenon that spawned cheap catchphrases like grass cuttings from a lawnmower, information age, technological convergence, digital revolution. The telephone seemed to be the device at the heart of things. It was, and it wasn't. I began my reporting at the great research laboratories built over a hundred years of American telecommunications history, AT&T Bell Labs and Bell Corps. Where else? Personal computer manufacturers were making their boxes. The network was not their department. Software companies had no evident interest in an emerging online world. There were commercial online services, mainly CompuServe, but from inside their portals, the Internet seemed as remote as the Magellanic Clouds. The telephone companies themselves were notoriously staid. I quoted Nicholas Negroponte's assessment of them as a bunch of sleepy janitors who haven't woken up. But at least they had taken stock of the computing all around them, and some of the forward-looking thinkers at their laboratories had a vision of the future. Actually, the head of research at Bell Labs, the eminent physicist Arnold Penzias, tried to warn me off the Internet. In the big picture, he said, it was negligible. Its total bandwidth, barely a fraction of a percent of the vast telephone network whose command center I had just toured. In the spring of 1993, the Internet did seem an obscure piece of the story I was trying to tell. It was still obligatory to explain a disorganized, evolving entity built up from hundreds of thousands of interlinked university, corporate, and government networks. 
But as I wrote, I couldn't help speaking again and again of the network, singular. The network, that is. An active, almost sentient creature. The Internet crept into the story through the back door and took it over. Then I was a writer between books, and I thought I saw a way to create, for myself at least, the kind of Internet access that the technical elite were beginning to take for granted. I started a company. It was called The Pipeline. And before it had two paid employees, it had a hundred customers. A month later, it had a thousand. And Jack Rosenthal, the editor of the New York Times magazine, asked me to tell him about it. I must have described my mixed wonderment and frustration my sense of an anarchic and yet democratic frontier, my hope or belief that the future belonged to tiny mammals scurrying about at the feet of dinosaurs, my ambivalence about the gap between the promise and the reality. Because in assigning me to write an essay about my experience, he equipped me with this mantra, I have seen the future, and it's still in the future. That was the spring of 1994. I'm not going to tell the story of the pipeline here. By the end of the year, I was selling the company to get back to the writing business. But meanwhile, I had learned some things that I had not understood and might never have understood as a reporter. As I wrote about technology and the future in the years that followed, I continued trying to fathom the emerging online world. I got some things wrong deliriously wrong. In This is Sex, I claim that the Internet was a poor medium for the delivery.